Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things Colorado water and wastewater. Today on the episode, we have a very good guest today, Nicole Ponsolet-Johnson, is the Director of Water Quality and Treatment at Denver Water, and Nicole is here to talk to us about the latest lead and copper rule variants that Denver Water got approved by the EPA and, and hopefully some other uh, issues and initiatives that Denver Water is is uh, undertaking. So welcome, Nicole. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks, Blair. Thanks for inviting me. I love talking about this topic. So Good. Well, maybe to uh, start out, can you give us a little bit about your background? I know you're the, I mentioned the director of uh, treatment and, and water quality at Denver Water, but what was your, take us through a little bit of your career path to getting there and what, what you do in that position currently. Sure. I uh, graduated uh, from Purdue University with a civil engineering degree, um, but I wasn't a big fan of physics, so I loved chemistry and biology and gravitated towards um, environmental engineering. So got into environmental engineering, um, worked as a design engineer for a short while and also uh, a project engineer and realized that we were designing and building things that didn't always make the, the owner happy. And, <laughs> and oftentimes the, the operator's frustrated. So um, I'm very curious and I decided, well, maybe I should be an operator for a while and understand what it's like to be an operator at a treatment plant before I keep hitting, you know, before I further venture down this engineering pathway. So I stepped back and, um, worked as a wastewater operator and also volunteered my time at small systems and as a water operator. And that experience was um, probably one of the best things that I could have done for myself. Um, it gave me some very practical experience. It gave me a feeling of what it's like to be uh, on the front line every day and deal with the challenges of equipment failing or plants failing or um, but also see the wonderful things that operators do to help clean up our water, either drinking water or, wa- or wastewater. And I was fortunate enough to um, be picked to, to help with some construction projects while I was an operator as well. Uh, my boss at the time, Tim Grother, down at Plum Creek, saw that I had uh, potential for project management. So I helped with some of the construction projects down there. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. Aurora Water later hired me to help them with the Binney Water Purification Facility. I was the senior project manager on that, and that was a fascinating project. A lot of new technology and old technology combined to treat different water sources. Um, I also learned a lot from Kevin Linder, uh, who's a, a, an amazing uh, water treatment supervisor for Aurora Water. So. Got a, got a chance to get my hands um, wet again, so to speak, on that project after we built it. I got a little bit of time behind the wheel, got to see what it was like to um, operate something that I had a hand in building. And so um, it was just through those uh, efforts that I realized I wanted to have an influence on future direction of how a utility solves problems, how a utility... Uh, invest in capital, how a utility treats its operators. So um, I decided to take the next um, jump and look at 
um, well, I came to a why in my career path actually, and I, I, I was good at project management, um, went the route and worked for Kiwit construction for a while and got a chance to work all over the, the Western United States on membrane plants and, um, chasing jobs and fixing jobs. Um, but I soon realized I missed the science and the public service aside and decided to go back into public service. Uh, started working for Thornton Water as a manager of water quality and treatment. Loved it. Uh, learned a lot. Learned a lot from those folks. With my first like full-on management job. So my apologies to anybody there <laughs> uh, as I learned. But then Denver Water came along. Um, I realized I had an opportunity to not only manage a, a really large system and work some, with some really talented people as well, but Denver Water has the, um, has the presence to be able to influence folks and policy regionally. And that really appealed to me, is to have a regional influence. Um, and so here I am. And uh, I do. I work with some, some phenomenal people, Denver Water uh, definitely attracts a lot of very highly competent people and I learn from them every day. So. Yeah. I salute you. I mean, I think it's great to have all those different backgrounds and especially the operations uh, perspective, especially in the job you do now and to actively seek that out yourself and know that that's going to be an important piece of, of, of managing operators and op and water systems. I, I salute you for uh, doing that. I also think it's funny when you uh, apologize to the people from your first uh, supervisor <laughs> job. I, I've thought of that too. Like, wow, what are those people 10 years, 20 years ago had to deal with me and the me of 20 years ago, I don't envy them, you know? <laughs> That's right. We're, we're human beings. We learn and grow. And unfortunately, some people pay for our mistakes. But. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they, don't, they pay it forward. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now to the uh, interesting question. Uh, what habit do you have now that you wish you had started much earlier? Um, yeah, I think I'm a, a very high level person. I tend to fly at about 50,000 feet, maybe 25,000 feet, but somewhere in there, I'm a high flying person. I, I like, and I'm very ADHD, like constantly focusing on new and challenging problems. So not very detail oriented. So <laughs> a habit that actually has, um, I've been able to develop during coronavirus to keep me focused because I don't have a lot of people around me constantly checking me is uh, I once a week sit down and um, write up all the meetings I have for the week. I write up all of my to do's and uh, I kind of, I, I fill them in and as I knock them out to help me stay on track and yeah, I'm, I'm over 50 years old and I had to figure out a way to manage the details of my life when it comes to work. So a little embarrassing, but that's the reality. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to, I'm going to learn from that. My daughter, she's, she's a kind of a, well, how do I put this? She's got a lot going on in school. So anyway, <laughs> one of her teachers helped her build this board uh, kind of with sticky notes and you switch it from to do and working on and finished. And like, I saw it and I was like, that's a genius. Why, why haven't I done that? So I, I get what you're saying there. 
Yeah, sometimes managing ourselves is the hardest. <laughs> That's true. That is true. All right, Nicole, let's get into uh, a little bit on the on the water uh, and lead and copper variants uh, side of things. Can you first, you know, for our for our audience who isn't aware, kind of give us a quick overview of of why we don't want lead in water, how it gets in water, and and why we want it out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so specifically to Denver water, um, you you can have lead in your source water. Denver water does not. But where where the water picks up the lead is in the service lines from the main into the house to the tap. So the um, service lines, um, all materials break down over time, but especially if our water is slightly corrosive or corrosive at all, it can help kind of pull that, those, the lead particles off the lead service lines and into the water. And in the case of Denver water, there's roughly um, 60,000 uh, lead service lines in our service area. We serve about 1.5 million people about 340,000 taps, and of those, about 60,000 are lead. And in 2012, we um, exceeded EPA's action level of 15 ppb. So our water was just slightly corrosive, and in that year, we exceeded it where um, more than one out of every 10 home that we sampled had a higher level than 15 ppb. Um, so then you uh, as, as treatment folks, we adjust our chemistry in the water to help minimize that corrosivity and reduce the lead that is basically leached into the water from, from the customer's service line. Does that help? Yeah, that's a, that's a good kind of intro into that whole variance process. So the, as a result of, of that reading of lead in your water uh, kicked in the optimum corrosion control treatment uh, piece and maybe you could take us through what was the variance and, and why was it why did Denver Water feel it was important as well as others? Yeah, in 2012, so we exceeded that um, action level in 2012. Uh, there were a series of desktop studies and also um, pilots studies that had to be done where we actually removed lead service lines from people's homes, um, conditioned them, and then set them up in pilots. Um, and then it takes a long time for those lead service lines to settle down when you extract them from the ground and put them in a rack and run water through them. And uh, so we had to do these studies that had to be approved by uh, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Um, and so it took a while to, to do all that research. Denver Water focused on pH and alkalinity adjustment and orthophosphate and completed those studies. Uh, in 2017, about the time that I came on to work for Denver Water, uh, Denver Water Engineering Group uh, released a study to CDPHE recommending pH and alkalinity adjustment, um, even though our results showed that orthophosphate was more optimal corrosion control treatment and the reason Denver Water was advocating for pH and alkalinity controls, it still had quite a significant reduction on lead levels um, coming off of lead pipes, but also mitigate any downstream impacts from any treatment that we would implement at Denver Water. But unfortunately, the lead and copper rule is very prescriptive. So 
CDPHE didn't have much of a choice. Our, our study showed that orthophosphate was the optimal control, corrosion control treatment. So in 2018, um, that, you know, they basically came out with a verdict saying, you will implement orthophosphate and you have two years to get your treatment plants in a position to um, feed orthophosphate. So uh, honestly, we came off that, uh, that, you know, directive from CDPHE with a little bit of a panic and in some cases even scratching our head, like, okay, I guess we do orthophosphate, but that didn't last for very long. We, um, we kind of gathered the nerve to see if there were other possible solutions that we could um, study and get in front of CDPHE um, before our two-year time frame ran up, ran out, excuse me. Yeah, I know kind of looking at it from the from the wastewater end and, and there were some on kind of the environmental end of, of you know, in the wastewater world, regs keep going down, you know, and limits keep going down as far as removing phosphorus to prevent those algal blooms and nutrient loading to reservoirs. So I know it was it was kind of a collision, I guess, in my in my mind of the drinking water side and the wastewater side, you know, of yeah. we're trying to get these low levels, achieve these low levels on the, on the wastewater side, yet on the drinking water side, it's required to put it in at, at much higher levels. And you usually, you're seeing it more and more, the, the Clean Water and the Safe Drinking Water Act kind of collide together. But I think this was a, this was kind of a clear case of, of that happening. So it was interesting how, how it was resolved and, and the, the process that, that took place to get it resolved. Can you take us through a little bit of, of who was involved in that work group process? And, and I know you were, you were running most of that. So any, any uh, lessons or, or anything you can tell us the interesting from that process? Yeah. If you, if you don't mind, I'd back up a little bit. So that experience that we talked about earlier where I was an operator, I was a wastewater operator and a water operator. And just to your point, I knew how hard it was to remove phosphorus from the water, but I'd also been on the drinking water side um, and managed a system that had these ponds that would see algal blooms that really made it very difficult for us to provide, you know, high quality drinking water in the summer. And it, and um, that was a, a reckoning point for me where I realized that the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act don't always <laughs> come together in a way that helps both, um, you know, humans and the environment and decided at that point, again, back to coming to work for Denver Water, maybe I could have a regional influence. And believe it or not, within four months of coming on to Denver Water, this popped up. Um, and be careful what you ask for, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I told my boss repeatedly, like, this is not something anybody would ask for in their first year of employment. <laughs> but, but anyway, I guess what, you know, sometimes you have to take risks in life. And so um, I, I was able to pull together a, a business case. We looked at cost, we looked at impacts and I put that in front of my boss and he put it in front of, uh, so my boss is Tom Rude. And then I put, he put it in front of, Jim Lockhead and said, hey, I, I think we have a case here to look at some other options. And that option was, what if we do pH adjustment 
and remove lead service lines. And uh, the data, I have a great staff, um, and I was able to pull together data from a lot of our previous lead service line removal and pair it with pH adjustment. And we could see rather quickly that if you get the lead service lines out, you can get lead levels down to non-detect. And um, if you look at the use of orthophosphate, which is a food additive and is, you know, and is very helpful at reducing lead levels in service lines, but it's also kind of the easier path. Um, it allows you to treat the, the lead coming off the pipelines and those lead pipe pipelines can sit there for a while. And, and what we had determined is that the rate we were removing lead service lines at about 1200 lead service lines a year, it would take 60 years to get all those lead service lines out. And lead, lead is a pretty durable product. So they, they could easily have made it another 40 to 60 years. And if you look at the cost of what happens with feeding orthophosphate, and then that orthophosphate makes it to the wastewater plants and the cost for the wastewater plants to take the orthophosphate out and reduce phosphorus discharges to the stream. And then because we're in such a dry arid, arid environment, about 40% of the water that we send to homes goes on lawns. And there's no real good way to control that phosphorus release to the lawns. The grass will uptake some of it, the soil will uptake some of it, but some of it will make it to the stormwater and then it's in the watershed. Um, and to clean that out of the watershed is also costly over a multi-decade issue. And at the same time, as compared to just getting the lead surface lines out, which remove the problem, the original problem, and solve it quicker. So we knew if we could get all the lead service lines out in 15 years and treat with pH and alkalinity adjustment, that we could actually lower lead levels for multiple generations um, much sooner and have, a, have a, an end result that did not impact the wastewater plants as much or the downstream. That being said, um, uh, that's the case that we started to put forward and I know there was a lawsuit that came from the wastewater and the environmental group and that kind of helped coalesce what Denver Water was thinking, what the wastewater and the stormwater folks were, were concerned about and force all of us to come together into a stakeholder uh, effort where we worked not only with CDPHE but EPA Region 8 and created work groups where we studied this even further. So it wasn't just Denver Water presenting this case, other folks like Metro Wastewater, Aurora Water, South Platte Renewal Partners, um, uh, Greenway Foundation, um, also some public health agencies, um, all came together and challenged one another to the status quo, which would have been orthophosphate. And, you know, we had our ups and downs. <laughs> There were times when, I mean, we were doing studies alongside the discussions and the negotiations in these work group meetings, which spanned from about June, June of 2018 through September of 2019. So in a year's time, basically, a little over a year's time, this region, um, really did a lot of work. A lot of people in this region were dedicated to 
evaluating the different alternatives, orthophosphate versus Denver Water's proposed pH alkalinity adjustment with lead service line removal. Um, and I think we really started gaining traction in December or January of, of 2018 um, when we were able to really uh, show that we, were, we could reduce lead levels, but there was a challenge from the health department saying, well, what happens with the lead service line or the homeowner or the kids um, that live in a home where it's going to take 10 years to get to that home? Yeah. And, you know, because pH adjustment isn't, isn't as optimal as orthophosphate. So Denver Water stepped up and said, well, what if we add filters? And a filter can remove up to 97% of the lead. So um, you can imagine that the costs are going up when every time we add a component to this lead reduction program proposal, and uh, sometimes, honestly, for me, <laughs> looking at my boss and looking at Jim Lockhead and saying, do you want me to keep going? Because this is costly. And it's, it's a, a big commitment. 15 years of removing lead service lines is a big commitment. And yeah. so um, <laughs> basically they looked at me and they said, you know, we believe in what, what you're doing. Keep going. And... Um, there were times when it occurred to me, we had probably 80 people at Denver Water working on this because we literally only had about a year, year and a half to convince folks that we could do this. Um, we had so many people working on it. And so at times I thought, what if this all fails? <laughs> I have put 80 people through a lot of <laughs> a lot of extra effort and it may fail. And so you know, at some point I had to stop asking myself that. I just had to say, you know, sometimes you have to risk, you have to have courage and you have to risk maybe it all to, uh, to get to a good result. And uh, fortunately, there were so many people who contributed to this and CDPHE pulled together stakeholders and we looked at costs, we looked at downstream phosphorus impacts over time and what we were able to demonstrate is that even though the wastewater plants would be taking phosphorus out of the streams more and more each year, that the phosphorus loading coming from Denver water through stormwater and wastewater would begin to dominate the stream. And so there was an environmental impact. And then we looked at the costs and the costs again proved out that orthophosphate costs versus um, pH alkalinity adjustment and lead service line removal they were either equal to or orthophosphate over time would be more expensive than the alternative that Denver Water was proposing. And if you look at how fast the improvements to public health come through the pH alkalinity adjustment and lead service line removal approach with the added with, you know, the addition of the filters, that is a really quick reduction in lead levels and a huge benefit to public health. So that triple bottom line analysis, people, planet, uh, profit or, or cost in this case, um, we were able to, I think, demonstrate that our alternative uh, proposal was the best solution for the for our customers and for the region. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with with how it worked out. And I think it's, you know, if you kind of did a, a root cause analysis of 
of what's at the root cause, you know, pretty easily you get to those lead service lines. Let's, let's deal with yeah. the problem instead of, instead of trying to, to fix the symptoms or, or, you know, phosphorus works, but the real problem is the lead lines. So I think the, if you did a root cause analysis, you'd get there pretty quickly. I think it's, it's fact that we got to the, the, the sensible solution in light of the political pressures, the, the, courage needed through the process and just the financial, political, and, and, and all the pressures that were involved. The fact we got to, to the best solution, I think maybe is, I don't know if it, it shouldn't shock me, but sometimes it, it doesn't happen like that. So I'm glad it did in this case. Yeah, I think uh, your, your point is well taken about the root cause analysis. Um, I, for a good part of my career, I feel like we've always leaned on technology to solve problems and where we're at with climate change or um, limited water resources, I think we need to start taking a new approach to solving problems and not leaning so much on technology, but leaning on innovative thought, innovative policy, um, respecting the roles of each person at the table, but also not being afraid to make the case for an innovative program that that maybe is a little different than what the industry has been seeing for the last 20 to 40 years. Yep, I, I agree. The other thing that, that struck me, and you kind of mentioned it, was the the link these lead service lines are out there. It always amazed me. I mean, these were put in in the, what, 1920s in some cases, and it's it's 2020 now, and they're still there and still going strong. I'm like, you know, we can't engineer anything to last that long if we try but when you want it out of there it happens to last 150 years so that's I, that one always just struck me is you would think this problem would kind of take care of itself over time but but it's those lines are lasting a long time we we see that most of our homes built prior to 1950 have wood service lines that's generally um the case unless yeah. they've been you know, um, re, they've rebuilt the house or something to that effect, and maybe the line's been replaced. But more often than not, pre-1950 homes have lead service lines. So even we have 1890 homes that have lead service lines. Wow. So, yeah, they last a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Nicole. I'd like to, uh, to get into the mid-show segment now. This is in the news today. I want to read a, a current news story, and this is right up your alley because it deals with uh, water treatment. So let me read. This is from the Science Times. Just came out today, October 23rd, 2020. Um, and it is an article titled, New Archaeological Dig Finds Advanced Water Filters from the Maya Civilization. So I'll read uh, some highlights from this article, but it's, it's pretty interesting. A team from the University of Cincinnati have found sophisticated water filters made from natural materials built by the ancient Maya civilization in its old city of Tikal, now in Guatemala. The research team from UC discovered traces of a filtration system from the remains of the Coriental Reservoir, uh, one of the reservoirs that provided drinking water for the ancient Maya. A team composed of anthropologists, geographers, and biologists from the Ohio-based institute discovered crystalline quartz and zeolite samples 
which are non-native into Cal. It suggests that these were imported several miles from the ancient city. Uh, quartz and zeolite, a crystalline compound containing silicon and aluminum, create a natural molecular filter and are still used in modern technologies. Kenneth Barnett Tankersley, the lead author of the study and an associate professor of anthropology from UC, explained that the filter system might have removed toxins from water such as heavy metals, nitrogen-laden compounds, and microbes. Uh, what's interesting in this system, oh, what's interesting is this system would still be effective today, and the Maya discovered it more than 2,000 years ago, Tankersley noted. Uh, the details of their findings are published in the journal Scientific Reports on Thursday, October 22nd. The Maya who lived in Tikal built the reservoirs, including their filtration systems, almost 2,000 years before Europeans developed similar systems. Tankersley said that this might be among the oldest water treatment systems ever discovered. So that's, uh, I, that was enlightening to me when I read it. We think we're, uh, we think we're so high tech, but the Mayans had this 2000 years ago, you know, or at least parts of it. So what do you think of that story, Nicole? Um, I, I think it, I love it <laughs> because <laughs> it shows that, um, they took some natural materials and naturally occurring materials and were understood that they could make water cleaner for their people by, by, you know, using that. And I'm sure it, it probably came out of, you know, accidental observation of how waters improve water improves as it moves through rock period, yeah. generally speaking. So you can see that in our streams and stuff, especially around here. But I, I don't think we give our, uh, prehistoric folks enough credit for the ingenuity that they presented um, to help, you know, their families survive waterborne diseases or even just other contaminants. And I got, I was lucky enough to go to Israel and I saw something very similar well over 2000 years old on how they diverted water and collected water to uh, protect it from the heat in the desert and use it year round. And it's, it's just cool. I love anthropology. Yeah. It always strikes me, you know, that how did they do this without the science with that? You know, it's kind of like the whole bacteria thing. They knew it was there before microscopes, you know, they didn't know what to call it, but it's just that how did they, you know, it must've just been observation, like you say, or, or common sense, I guess. But I think now we get more reliant on, you know, technology and the science is there, but, but the fact they did this without all that science is, it always amazes me. All right. Where can people go if they want to learn more on Denver Water's approach to the filtering or lead removal? Um, well, we were fortunate enough. EPA uh, worked with us and CDPHA worked with us and granted the variance in December of 2019. So a little less than a year ago. And you can find uh, a lot of great work. Um, including the work that we did for the variants to, to get the variants approved. And you can find out um, basically all the components of our lead reduction program can be found at the Denver Water Lead Reduction Program site. You can just Google Denver Water Lead Reduction or Denver Water Lead, and it'll pretty much take you to a link um, for, the web, for the page on our website. You could also just do the Denver Water website um, click on water quality and then click on lead reduction program. But I'm a Googler. So instead of just giving you a full on 
address. I think that's just the easiest way to go. Just yeah, I agree. I uh, I haven't typed in an address into the search bar for years. It's all it's all Google. <laughs> but I great. do know there is a great uh, there's a great dashboard. I have looked at that site and the dashboard that Denver Water has up with different metrics on on their progress is it's a it's easy to read and, and succinct and, and tells you right where they're at. So I think that's a it's a great dashboard for people to check out if they're interested. Yeah, the um, the public affairs folks for Denver Water and the program that was hired to help uh, implement the lead program, you know, that that is our their intent. And they've done a great job of having um, meetings at at neighborhoods. Um, getting feedback, trying to make everything that we do customer friendly. Uh, because the more the customers are engaged, the better, the higher the likelihood we are going to be successful at people using their filters and also getting um, cooperation and getting the lead service lines out. So they, they've done a phenomenal job of making this customer friendly. Good. Great. Well, good luck. Uh, good luck with those lead line removals and, and with the program in general. And thank you for your, you and Denver Waters courage in, in putting this forward. I think it came out to a, a great solution at the end of the, end of the day, but let's move into some other, other, I mean, that was an innovative project or innovative idea, the whole variance thing, but what other innovative projects or, or ideas are you working on there at Denver Water? Yeah. So uh, Denver Water embraces, uh, continuous improvement practices and, and has long before I joined. Um, and so one thing that I noted as, as, a, as an operator and as a, in construction and then in management of treatment plants is oftentimes there are issues that pop up and it's not that easy to get an RFI out to an engineering team to and then to procure an engineer to come in and look at the problem and then study the problem. And, you know, it, it, that, that whole process can tend to take anywhere from six months to a year to a year and a half. Um, so one thing that we have taken on is develop a strike team. Within Denver Water, we took a group of operators, a group of scientists, a group uh, combined with engineering talent and that strike team can be basically deployed to any plant at any time to um, assist with uh, an optimization problem. Uh, for instance, we had a, a centrifuge uh, at one of our treatment plants that just was, it was only putting out about 50, per, operating about 50% of the time. And they went in, spent that time with that team, scaled everything back, looked at all the variables, and then started implementing changes one variable at a time, one one or I should say one um, you know parameter at a time. And for the last three or four months, we've been able to operate that centrifuge one hundred percent of the time. Wow! So it's it's one of those things where we just and they're and then when they're done or when that when the optimization has occurred and the operators have been trained on that optimization. Um, they extract themselves <laughs> and they make the, the home team kind of own that process and they, um, they extract themselves. They'll come back about six months, a year later, just to verify that everything's going okay. And of course, there's always the, the phone that somebody could pick up. But it's really a, a, a focused effort to help 
our treatment plants, of which we have four, um, get through problems quickly. And to take what we have and make it better without necessarily investing in capital or technology, a lot of times, again, that easy button is to go, oh, I'm going to invest you know, millions of dollars in this technology and it's going to solve our problems. Well, my experience has been that doesn't always work. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is say, are we operating this optimally? And if we, if we make these adjustments, can we make this process work better without a capital improvement? And I think that they're starting to have some great success. They're also teaching a philosophy to the, to the treatment plant teams that um, helps them look at things differently and helps them just maybe naturally look at continuous improvement. So we still have a long way to go, but um, we're starting to see some, some fruits from that, that effort. And it's kind of fun for the people in the, on that team to be able to go to different treatment plants and tackle a problem and then be pulled out and go to the next one. Kind of a fun little concept. And I think it gives people an opportunity to see and experience a lot of different things. Yeah, I think it it sounds great to me on on two levels. I mean, one, you have that multidisciplinary approach, which you don't see all the time. Usually it's the engineers are going to solve this or operations is going to solve this or or whatever, but you don't you don't see enough of let's get a team of of chemists, operators, engineers and put them all together and get the best the best ideas out there. So I like that. The other is you know, having someone from the outside, I think a lot of times if you deal with something and it's right in front of you all the time, you can get caught up in that's normal and, and you can't get out of your own way to get it fixed, you know. So I think having a, a group come in and, and kind of look with a new set of eyes and, and fresh eyes on the on the subject, I can see that helping because I've been in situations where it's, this is just normal to me and this is how we do it and we're going to put up with it for the next 20 years because we don't know what to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And your, your plate is full with other things to do. So you don't have time to go and, and look at it. So yeah, this is meant to help kind of leverage a little momentum from a strike team to make a change. Well, good. All right. Are you ready for the end of show quiz, Nicole? I'll give it my best. <laughs> All right. Good. This is, I know you're from Denver Water, so this is a Denver quiz for you. Not necessarily water, but Denver in general. Uh, we'll see how much, you know about, uh, how much you know about the great city of Denver here. So number oh. one, <laughs> you're, you're used to dealing with regulations and, and laws and rules, so this should be right up your alley. In Denver, it is against the law to lend this to your neighbor. Is it A, toothbrush? B, boat, C, internet connection, or D, vacuum cleaner. Which one is it against the law in Denver to lend to your neighbor? Toothbrush. <laughs> the toothbrush is incorrect. It is a, that's a, you would think it would be toothbrush, but it is a, actually vacuum cleaner. You cannot lend your vacuum cleaner to your neighbor. I don't know why. Um, I would like to know why. I wonder how many times that rule gets broken <laughs> yeah i don't know and i don't know if it's just your immediate neighbor if you can lend it down the street but not to your your next door neighbor or what the rules are but you're in an apartment <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> all right 
Number two, uh, which of these ingredients is usually found in a Denver omelet? Which one of these is usually yeah. in a Denver omelet? Uh, a, green chili, B, mushrooms, three bell pep or C, bell peppers, or D, avocado? Which one is usually in a Denver omelet? Uh, bell peppers. Oh, <laughs> you are correct. All right, you're one for two. You could you would uh, think it would be green chili, right? But I know, you would think, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, number three. Henry Duchendorf. I, I gotta figure out how to say that. Must Duchendorf Jr. is known for what? Henry Duchendorf Jr. is no I can't even say that. Is known for what? <laughs> is it A A playing Gilligan on Gilligan's Isle TV series? Uh, B, serving as Denver's first mayor, C, writing the song Rocky Mountain High, or D, owning the Humpty Dumpty drive-in where he created the cheeseburger in 1935. What is Henry Duschendorf Jr. known for? Um, I think that's John Denver. Uh, <laughs> you are correct. That is that is John Denver who wrote Rocky Mountain High and many other great uh, Colorado ballads there. So you're Google's two for three. <laughs> what was that? I said Google's amazing. <laughs> Are you on Google? I should have said no Googling. I should have known you would Google. <laughs> well, whatever means you use to get the answers, that's all right, I guess. You are two for three, so uh, well done. And thanks again for being on the show. That's been interesting to hear uh, about the variants and about your other uh, efforts and, and management of, of Denver water treatment systems. So I appreciate you being on. Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, thanks, Blair. And, and thanks for your help with the variants. You were a part of that as well. And I appreciate um, your involvement and your voice. You bet. And to our listeners, thanks for listening to the show. If uh, you like the show, tell a friend or a colleague about it, and, and maybe they'll start listening. We want to thank our sponsors, the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council for their sponsorship of the show. Uh, please send your ideas, any ideas you have for topics or guests uh, that you'd like to hear on the show to mail or uh, streamingwater at mail.com. I can't even remember the email address. I knew mail wasn't right. Streamingwateratmail.com. So, yeah, that's it for this episode. Thanks again, Nicole, and we'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast.